open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. It ought to be really simple for you today. It's literally the first page, so you're going to feel great going into this. Genesis chapter uh, 1. Now, Genesis is a, a pretty intimidating book, if we're being honest, because there's a lot of different things and a lot of different questions and even a lot of debates about you know, what's the real meaning of this book. But, you know, it, it was written 3,500 years ago, and we're still reading it today. It's still giving life today. It's still for us today. But when you think Genesis, just think this, this, uh, this word very simply, think beginnings. The word Genesis actually means origin, so it's foundations. So who's ever played Jenga before? Anybody played Jenga? So j- think of Genesis as the, the bottom peg on the Jenga t- uh, tower. And so if you have that peg right there, then basically you're going to have a foundation to build on. If you take that peg away, then it's all, just all reality, every, every endeavor in life is just going to fall apart. And what Genesis does is it's, it's kind of like that bottom peg that gives us a foundation for understanding life. And so just to help us get our footing, what I want to do is I want to give you four, I'm going to have a little bit longer introduction today, just so that you can know your way around Genesis, kind of how it works, where it came from. Uh, I want to give you four foundational details that will enable comprehension, interpretation, and application of Genesis. C-I-A, you won't forget that. Comprehension, interpretation, and application. First of all, I want to tell you who wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. Moses, the servant of God that we read about in the Old Testament 3,500 years ago. This was 1,400 years before Jesus walked the earth. The whole book covers 2,000 years of human history. So every time you turn a page in Genesis, you're turning like hundreds of years. So the stories that were included are sovereignly situated into the scriptures by God because they're very important. You know, a lot happens over the course of 100 years, and there's only a a few things that we read about over the course of these 2,000 years. Uh, Also, the the audience. Who was the audience? Well, Genesis was written to an original audience. It was to a generation of God's people who had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. And what was Egypt like? Well, excuse me, Egypt was a place where the people worshipped false gods. They basically had these two gods. It was like what you would call a dualistic uh, religion, religious society. There was the sun god and there was the moon god. And the Israelites are coming out of a place where they worship false gods, and they're going into a place where, in uh, Cana, which was the promised land, where they're going to worship false gods uh, again. And so uh, this was just the norm of where they're coming from, where they're going. And so um, if, if you know, you know, Moses, who's writing this, doesn't make it to the promised land. You, if you want to geek out, go and read Numbers chapter 20. But basically, he, he disobeys God, throws a tantrum, and there's some consequences, and he just gets to see it. He doesn't get to actually go into it. And he wants to make sure that the future generations that go into this place where they're going to challenge everything that they hold dear are actually ready for it. It's kind of like sending your kids off to college. Who's ever sent a kid off to college before? Like, what you want to do with that is you want to make sure they know how to do laundry. Hopefully, sometimes it's a failure to launch. Other times, it's how do you find food? You know, do you have access to the cafeteria? You know, maybe a a budget or something like that. But more importantly, what you want to do is you want to deposit principles into that college student that is going to help them navigate life in a very confusing uh, setting uh, that's going to prevent them from harm. That's what Moses is doing. He's sending his kids off to college, and he wants to provide them with a history that will set them up for a bright future. He wants to give them roots that are going to go down in the ground that can produce shoots where they can be fruitful and have a good life. And he's like, hey guys, this is where you came from. This is how you can live in a place that's going to oppose everything that you hold dear. 
And, you know, who was it written for? Well, it was written for that generation, but it's also 3,500 years later. It's also written for you and for me, as we will, as we will soon see. So that's the, the, the author, the audience. Let me tell you the arrangement. Genesis, there's 50 chapters, covers 2,000 years of history. And how is it set up? Well, it's actually very simple, and I'm going to give you a simple way to think about Genesis. Genesis 1 through, uh, really, uh, chapter 11 is the story of God's world. That's the, 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 the name of the series, the story of the world. And what it is, is it's uh, who are we, who is God, where did we come from, and why are we here? All the big questions that we're still answering or asking today are actually addressed and answered in Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 12 through 50 is the story of God's work. So we see God's work continuing through Abraham, through Sarah, through Hagar. We see it continuing through Isaac, through, uh, through, through Jacob, through Judah, through Joseph. And we see God's work continuing in, uh, in the world. And so what is the aim of Genesis? Like, what's, what's the aim? Well, the aim is to give us a foundational explanation of creation, of, of, of God, of ourselves, and how we are supposed to relate with God in what is now a broken world. And I, I really do need to say this. I need you to hear this up front. Keep in mind, Genesis was not written to answer all of our questions. Genesis was written with a very specific purpose in mind. And what it does is it gives us a foundational explanation. It does not give us a full explanation. It gives a, fa a foundation of reality, but it doesn't give a full explanation of all of reality. Like, for example... It does not tell us the age of the earth, although we're going to interact with that a little bit. It doesn't tell us exactly how God created. It doesn't tell us about the meteors and the dinosaurs and the tacos and the dinosaur tacos and everything in between, all the things that we have questions about. But the main aim is to make clear who God is by showing that everyone and everything comes from God, depends on God, and ultimately answers to God. And so the orthodox, that is the right belief, the orthodox Christian view is that everything that we see and don't say, see began with God, and everything that began with God was very good. And so we come to Genesis 1, and we've got a lot of questions. And, and, and there's, there's a lot of confusion that can come from Genesis 1, but let me do my best to simplify it with one statement. This is Genesis 1. What is it all about? When God speaks, good things happen. When God speaks, good things happen. And so you're about to see this phrase, and God said over and over. And in the Bible, when something is repeated, it's always for a purpose. It's to get our attention. It's like, you know when you tell your kids something multiple times? It's like, it's pretty important, right? It's like, this is not something that's crawling off the table that we're just going to forget about, Okay. Well, God does that in Scripture, and it's to get our attention. This is important. We're going to see God said ten times in chapter 1. And every time God says, good things happen. And so here's the implication. It's very relevant for us today in the 21st century, living in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, is that if we want good things to happen in our life, we need to constantly be reading the Word of God, speaking the Word of God, believing the Word of God, trusting the word of God. And we're going to see that unfold in uh, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick up with verse 1. Here we go. In the beginning, God. So let's stop right there. Before there was something, there was someone. And that someone is the subject 
of all of Scripture. Just in Genesis chapter 1, God is going to be the subject of the action of the creation 40 times. And so <laughs> here's how we want the Bible to start. We want it to start uh, with us being a twinkle in the Creator's eye, a snowflake that is yet to fall. God's lonely until we get here, but that's not how it starts. So here's, here's the... Here's the application right here. Everything in your life is supposed to begin with God. Everything. If you want to make sense of sin and suffering, of, of forgiveness, of, of, of finance, finances, of people and of purpose, then you start with, how do I welcome God? How do I start with God in this area? Who's ever been to an escape room before? It's like this like mystery plot that you'll go through these different rooms, there'll be these different clues, and along the way you can't get to the next room until you figure out what's in that first room, right? Well, that's, the Bible actually works that way. Unless you figure out that everything in your life is supposed to start with God, continue with God, and end with God, you're not going to make it out. You're going to be in, in some trouble. And so what we see in the creation narrative is how it continues to be all about God. All about God and His generous initiative to create things for His glory and our good. And this is supposed to humble us, by the way. And here's why. Because nothing good in your life started with you. God is the great initiator. Think about it. Did we ask God to create the world and make it very good? No. He just did it. <laughs> did we ask God to leave heaven and to come and to rescue us from our rebellion against Him? No, he just did it. Did, did we ask God to write down his word and give it to us? It's called revelation. No, he, he, just, he just did it. And it's, it's because he wants to be in relationship with us, but it's also because he wants to initiate that with us. Uh, continue in verse 1. In, in the beginning, God, what did he do? He created the heavens and the earth. So what is that? That's the Google Earth summary of chapter 1. And what we need to acknowledge is that between chapter, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 is where a lot of debating and dividing has happened inside the church and outside the church. And we're going to interact with this for a little bit. Because from here, what traditionally and often is, is, is held is that God goes on to create in six literal days, Right? It would not be uncommon for that to be like the, the widely held view. But here, here's what we need to do. Take a look, and I'm going to put this on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. What is Genesis 1? It is a telling of creation. What is Genesis 2? It is a telling of creation. Gen except Genesis 2 uh, actually describes a different timeline for creation. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so what's happening right here is all of those six supposed uh, literal days that creation was created is then summarized in the very next chapter as just being one day. And this raises a lot of honest questions, right? It's like, I'm not trying to make your head hurt. I'm inviting you to think on a deeper level about, hey, what is, how do we take the Bible seriously? Is, is the Bible contradicting itself? No, 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 no. The Bible, you need to understand this, and this is one of the reasons why the Bible could only come from God is because of the internal consistency of it from, from Genesis to Revelation. Only God could compose the Bible. 
But let's do a little bit of noticing. And this is hard for us because in order for us to really, really get to the root of these themes and these helpful takeaways, it takes patient study. We have to slow down. We have to get off of Instagram. We have to stop looking at at what our neighbor has and start looking at what God's put in front of us. So let's do some noticing together, shall we? Uh, First of all, the word day. It's used to uh, supposedly uh, describe a 24-hour day in Genesis 1, in day 1, day 2, day 3, and so on. But then in Genesis 2-4, it's used in a different way. It's the same word. It's the word yom. And it's used differently in Genesis 1 than it is uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, secondly, here's, here's another thing for us to consider. Um, and there's a, a, a little bit of a dispute about this, and it's fine to land on either side. Some say Genesis 1 is poetic, and Genesis 2 is more literal. Some say Genesis uh, 1 is more literal, and Genesis 2 is a poetic retelling of the creation account. And, you know, maybe your antennas are going up, and you're ho, 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 hold on. How can you say that we're not supposed to take the Bible literally? Like, we're supposed to take the Bible literally, right? A better way to think about it would be we're supposed to take the Bible seriously. And what that means is that we are going to interpret the Bible on its own terms, not based off of our agendas or our biases. And here's a way to think about it. Let's say that you were to read an article about 22 men who were just brawling and hitting each other. You're like, man, I bet that was not good. I bet a lot of them went to jail, except you're reading the sports section and it was a football game. But if you interpret that in a way that it was not intended to be interpreted, you're going to come to a wrong conclusion, right? When we, we do the same thing with Scripture. For example, uh, Je- Genesis, Exodus, who knows what comes next? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So let me show this to you. In Judges chapter 4, there is a literal account of an actual battle that Israel fought against the Canaanites. Right after Judges 4, in Judges chapter 5, there is a poetic retelling of the exact same event when the judge, Deborah, sings that the stars in the heavens came down and fought for Israel, but she's speaking metaphorically. She's not literally saying that the stars came down. And so to take it seriously would be to understand that Judges 4, hey, that was maybe a more literal. Judges 5 is a more poetic retelling. To take it seriously would to see the genre that it fits in. So it's possible that Genesis 1 and 2 function the way that Judges 4 and 5 function. And this raises more questions (laughs) while we're here in some deep waters. Is what we read in Genesis 1 literal 24-hour periods, or are these figurative days that refer to an indefinite amount of time? Oh, and by the way, what about evolution? And on that note, I just want to reassure you, your community group leaders are experts in this subject matter. (laughs) And they are ready to answer all your questions this week. Make sure that you're a community group. Kidding. Now that community group leaders are all paying attention and the rest of us, here's what I can tell you. They're going to help you. They're going to have some resources this week in your community groups that will, that will help you kind of uh, rumble with some of this. But when it comes to the age of the earth, the how of creation, here's what I want to tell you simply. Christians have unnecessarily divided over three primary views that uh, are, are held within Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians. But there is a debate. And you know, kind of the, the, there's, there's three of them. There's young earth creationism. And I'll, I'll tell you briefly about these. And 
I'm trying to equip you to go and form your own view by here, right here, by the way. I'm not going to tell you which one's right. Um, I, I have my own personal opinions, but ultimately that's, that's not really going to help you a whole lot. What is going to help you is for you to own your faith and go and figure out which of these do I believe. Young Earth creationism, the Earth is between 6,000 and 10,000 years old. The fossil strata were laid down in the flood of Noah, which was global in scope, and God created the world in six literal days. That's one view. Another is old Earth, old earth creationism. Now, this is where you hear about the, the day-age theory or the gap theory. This is the belief that God created the universe through a combination of natural processes and direct intervention. The earth is approximately four and a half billion years old, as is evidenced in the fossil record and astronomical data. The six days of creation in Genesis 1 are not intended by Moses to be interpreted as 24-hour periods. And then there's one final view, which is probably going to be more startling to some if you grew up in church and you've never heard of this view. It's actually called evolutionary creationism. And here's what I want to tell you about this before I just briefly introduce it to you, is uh, this startled me when I first found out about it, probably back in 2012, and I started looking into it and seeing, like, what is actually the position of this? Can, can you look at evolution as a God-guided, god governed process that he ordained and used and guided at every step to get to where we are today and not compromise the essentials of the faith? That was, that was the question. And then I realized that a lot of the guys who I quote in my sermons who I deeply respect are evolutionary creationists. <laughs> you ever heard of C.S. Lewis? You ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? You ever heard of Tim Keller? They're all they're all ECs, and here's what it, believe, what it says, is that evolution was the process that the biblical God governed in God and to create the world. The earth is approximately four and a half billion years old, as evidenced in the fossil record and astronomical data. The six days of creation refer to eras of evolutionary development. Let me be clear, this is not Darwinian evolution. This is fundamentally different. Um, Darwinian evolution uh, asserts uh, that uh, something came from nothing, and a as we see in Genesis 1, something came from someone. Darwinian evolution asserts that it was random mutation uh, that, that, that led to what we see, everything that we see and don't see, and there ultimately is no existential meaning or purpose to life. That could not be any farther away from the biblical vision for purpose in life and creation, so it's not that. But here's what I want to tell you. If you're not familiar, if you're not familiar with these three views or Man, something that I just said maybe rattled the windows a little bit. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Study this. Look into this. Form your own view and form your own vision right here within the kind of the safe harbors of some of these views that I just mentioned. Uh, and here's, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Um, hold it with an open hand. Be very charitable toward those who, who disagree. A divided world needs a united church. And uh, you, you might be just thinking, man, why even get into this? Just preach the gospel, man. And I would be like, you don't understand the gospel because the gospel begins with creation. <laughs> if you don't have creation, you don't have salvation. There's no salvation without creation. And what does good faith do? Good faith interacts intelligently with honest questions that people are actually asking. The last thing that our secular society needs is intellectually flimsy and cowardly Christians. 
We need to take ownership of our faith and be able to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And so that's verse 1. Let's look at the rest of these verses. Uh, let's look at creation. What you're going to see is a pattern. Days 1 through 3, what, <clears throat> what happens is God forms. He forms creation. Days 4 through 6, what God does is he fills creation. So verse 2, we're going to get moving. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So when you see the Spirit hovering, something's about to come out of nothing. Order's about to come out of chaos. That's the same idea when the Spirit of the Lord hovered over Mary and the uh, miraculous conception took place and Jesus was born of a virgin. It says the Spirit overshadowed. It's the same idea right here. And God uh, said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. All right, just quick recap right here. On day one, God, God shines the light of his glory into his creation. How does he do it? Through his spoken word. When God speaks, good things happen. And now, what, is, what does good mean? By the way, I want to talk about this for a moment. What does good mean? Does good mean good enough? You ever done something that was good enough? It probably wasn't good enough, was it? But it's, it's not, when God says good, he doesn't mean good enough. He means more than enough. It's not just good enough to survive. It's more than enough to thrive. And I, I, have you guys seen those, those Stanley cups, by the way? Some of you have these. Okay, it's, it's this new, like, tumbler that uh, a lot of people are really into, and so somebody, just some genius out there, thought to include a straw with the tumbler. <laughs> somebody thought to include a handle on the tumbler. And somebody thought to include a tumbler that narrows at the bottom so it will fit in your cup holder. Move over, Elon Musk. You should have done this instead of buy Twitter. This is incredible. <laughs> And so what, what happens with the Stanley Cup, and this is kind of silly, but it's also serious, is you get more than enough for you to stay hydrated. It's not just, here's, here's like some, some like JV tumbler over here. Dude, this is a Stanley. It's like this thing is going to keep you hydrated, and it's got more than enough. God did not just give us rice and beans. He gave us painter's ice cream. He gave us smoked meat. He gave us chips and salsa. All right? God did not just give us these generic plants. He gave us daisies. He gave us daffodils. He gave us peonies. He gave us petunias. God did not just give us a boring earth. He gave us the beach. He gave us the mountains. He gave us the woods. He gave us waterfalls. He gave us trails. Why is that? Because God is a God of more than enough, not just good enough. And when God looks out at your life and he says, that's good, what he's saying is you have more than enough to thrive. You have more than enough to just survive. Take a look at verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. Do you get all that? And it was so... <laughs> And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Okay, so quick recap. On day two, God speaks, and the seas and the skies are created. This is the foundation of the atmosphere. And once more, God separates. That's a key thing that you see. 
repeated, separating, putting everything where it goes. He, puts, he separates waters from waters, putting everything in its proper place. It's all very good. Day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 12, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And so on day three, God speaks and the earth and vegetation are created. And what does he say about it? It's very good. And this piques our curiosity because my daughter Eleanor the other day, she said, Daddy, we're not going to know if watermelons are a fruit or a vegetable until we get to heaven and ask Jesus. I said a legitimate matter of scientific inquiry. I cannot wait to ask that question. Another act of separation is happening right here. You see the ocean separated from the land, day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. We're going to boomerang back to that in a moment. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to what? Separate. Put things in their proper place. The light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And so on day four... God speaks, and the sun and the moon and the stars are created. It's another act of separation. Something a little odd about this is how Moses says there's two great lights. And if you're anything, you're like, like me, you're just like, Mo Moses, just say it. You're talking about the sun and you're talking about the moon. And I love the way that Bible teacher Jen Wilkin describes why Moses did not say the sun and the moon. It's because he knew what that would bring to the minds of his original readers. Because where did his original readers just come from? Egypt, whose two primary gods were the sun god and the moon god. And so what Moses is doing right here is he is saying, I am not even so much as going to dignify a false god by mentioning their names and calling to mind those centuries of false worship back in Egypt because there is only one name under heaven who receives all glory, honor, and praise. And this is why we see, again, the Bible is uh, consistent, and it's about God from start to finish. So Genesis to Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, we see God's wrath unleashed upon injustice and evil. And it's, the, the picture is there's these seals that are open, and there's this form of God's judgment that is unleashed on rebellious creation. And one of the seals is open, and when it happens... The, the sun darkens and the moon turns to blood as all of creation is undeniably put on notice that there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and he is the judge of the living of the dead. That's Jesus Christ. 
And then you get to Revelation 21, 23, and we see that in the new heavens and the new earth, what is the source of light? It's not the sun. It's not the moon. It's the glory of God which gives light to all of God's good creation. Verse 20, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged, winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. If you underline in your Bible, that's an important word, blessed. Saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So God speaks and the seas and the skies are created on day two. And then God speaks again and the seas and the skies are filled on day five with, with all these fishes and, and all of these birds. And what we're introduced to right here is this idea of blessing. So there's two creatures in God's creation who are blessed. One is over the other, humans over animals. But God does bless animals. And here's the idea of, of blessing is it's not some, some goofy hashtag that you, that, you, that you put out there and just doesn't really have any like actual depth or meaning to it. You're just generically saying your life is good. No, it's not just that, like life is good in the way that the world understands it. It's life is good in the way that God pronounces it. <clears throat> and he says it's to be fruitful and to multiply. So to be fruitful means that you are full of life and you have so much life that you can actually give it to some, someone else. To multiply is to do just that. It's to give the life that you've been given away to other people. What is the church? A blessed people. We are blessed to bear fruit to be filled with a life that did not originate with us because we were dead in our sins, but God breathed life into our lungs spiritually, and he gives us this life to be fruitful and to, to overflow and multiply into the, the, the lives of those who don't yet have this life. Day 6, verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So again, here's the pattern. Days one through three, God forms. Days four through six, God fills. So on uh, this day, God speaks, and the earth and the trees and the plants that were formed on day three are now filled with land animals. And we'll see this next week. You'll need to come back. It's also filled with humans in verse 26, and it's all good. And I, what I hope you see is that when God speaks, good things happen. That's, that's what Genesis 1 is telling us. When God, you need the Word of God. You need the preached Word of God. You need, you need the read Word of God. You need the spoken Word of God. You need the meditated Word of God. But here's something, again, this is really where we honestly kind of just butt heads in class way too much, is that we go to Genesis 1 and we expect it to answer questions that it was not intended to answer. It's like, tell me, just tell me the age of the earth. Tell me the exact means and mechanisms whereby God ordained to impart and impute the image of God upon humans who are the crown of his creation. Just tell me. Tell me about the dinosaurs. Tell me about the meteors. And here's something that I just want to put in front of you as a great principle for biblical interpretation. 
We need not shout where the Bible whispers. We need not whisper where the Bible shouts. And what I want to give you is three examples of how when God speaks, it's very good. And they're right out of Genesis chapter 1, and this is what you're supposed to take away from Genesis chapter 1. More than all those other secondary issues, number one is this. When God speaks, chaos turns to order. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. That means it was chaotic. Before the completion of creation, it was chaos. And what do we see? In John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, the, uh, God was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that was God. So Genesis 1, every time you see, and God said, guess who that is? That's Jesus. Jesus was present from, the, from before the foundations of the earth. He's self-existent. He's eternal. He's always existed. It'll make your head hurt. <laughs> but the earth was without form and void, but, and it was chaotic before it was completed. And later in John 1.14, we see that the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus comes as the Word of God to turn chaos into order, to take what God created and we decreated and then him recreate it. And so in Mark chapter 4, one of the most vivid examples of this <clears throat> is Jesus is on a boat with his disciples, and there's this chaotic storm that's going on at sea, kind of like in Genesis chapter 1, there were chaotic waters, and he is awakened by his disciples who says, Jesus, it's chaotic out here. Would you please bring order? That's a summary. And so Jesus stands up, and just like at the beginning of time, he speaks to the wind and the waves, and he says, peace be still, and he brings order from chaos. So when Jesus speaks over your life, when Jesus speaks into your life, chaos can turn into order. And here's, you know, it's hard to say this out loud because here's what, what do most people actually want? What most of us just want our life to be like those prescription arthritis commercials where you start off and you've got kind of like one pain point in your life. It's just one thing. And then you get the prescription, and by the end of the commercial, you're walking your dog, you're in a kayak, and it's sunny outside, and you've got a smile on your face. Anybody? <laughs> that, that, is, that is the way that we think about, like, that's what I really want my life uh, to be about. Um, but the reality is, that's not how any of our lives are. Our lives are very chaotic. More chaotic than we care to confess. And uh, some of you your relationships are just totally chaotic. And if you were being honest, you would just say, like, drama, like, follows me. It surrounds me. Aren't you glad God speaks into our relationships? Uh, Proverbs, uh, personally, I'm reading through this, but in, in Proverbs chapter 13, it says, whoever walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools, that's the person who says there is no God, suffers harm. How much more order would enter into your life if the people closest to you were committed to Christ being formed in you and committed to Christ being formed in, in, in them. Uh, Proverbs goes on in Proverbs 18. This is a graphic verse. It says, A fool's lips walk into a fight. His mouth invites a beating. Our words have weight. And the power of life and death is in the tongue. So some of us, what we need to do is... You, <laughs> somebody said it, somebody said it. Um, 
You're responding. I like this. What some of us need to do is we need to think before we speak. Because we, we have no consideration for how our words are affecting other people. And it's, it's ready, fire, aim. <laughs> Instead of aim, think about it, then maybe I don't fire at all. And so what we need to do is we need to trade the chapstick for a glue, st- glue stick and maybe keep it shut and not say everything that comes to our minds. Um, but then um, Proverbs also says that it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. Do you know what overlook means? That means you don't even bring it up. That means you say, I'm just going to have a thick skin and a heart like Jesus, and I'm going to press into forgiveness by not even bringing it up and not even making a big deal out of it. Some of us, what we do is we, we turn um, molehills into mountains, small deals into big deals. We're constantly triggered. It's like, calm down. And recognize it's probably not that big of a deal. Relationships. But others, maybe your marriage is chaotic. You know, I'll, I'll be totally, totally real with you guys. Victoria and I, we're working on our marriage. Sometimes it can feel chaotic. After 11 years, you, you don't... Anybody can get married, not just anybody can stay married. It takes a lot of grace, takes a lot of forgiveness. But what if you... Aren't you glad God spoke into marriages? Aren't you glad? Well, you know, go read. Couple, married couples, go and read Ephesians 5 and just say, we're going to do this. Men, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a man worth following. Women, I'm going to be a woman who's leadable, who's worth leading. And then other, others of us, it's like your finances are just totally chaotic. And what would happen if you were to actually synthesize the biblical precepts on finances, aren't you glad God spoke on it, and say, we're going to do this. And what is it? It's give first to honor God. It's save to be wise. It's live on the rest to teach yourself contentment. Do you realize how much order would be restored if we would actually take God at his word and take our next step? Some of you, your emotions are very chaotic. And I want want to be gentle right here because emotions are not decisions. They're events. I think a lot of people talk about emotions in very unhelpful ways. Just change. Stop being so sad or so dramatic or so intense or whatever it is. And so what happens is, thank you, by the way, I don't know where this came from, but... Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, what happens is with our emotions, um, we we cannot we can't just change instantly, right? We need help from outside of us. Um, and the Bible actually argues that uh, we are emotional creatures. Jesus was the fullest emotional creature to ever walk the earth. But it actually argues that um, um, our emotions can be affected by our decisions based on what we fill our mind with. And so there's so much uh, in Scripture about, like, take every thought captive and, and, and lay it at the feet of Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Or, hey, God clothes the, the birds of the air. He dresses the lilies of the field. Are you not of more value than they? This is Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talking. Man, that's supposed to, to calm you, to, to slow your heartbeat a little bit in those moments when your blood pressure is, is going up. What happens? God speaks, chaos turns to order. Thank God. Next, when God speaks, darkness turns to light. So I want you to see this on days one and four. We see uh, this is what is repeated. And God saw that the light was good and God separated light from darkness. So the idea of separating light from darkness is one of the great themes of the Bible. 
So God says some things do not go together. Some things do not go together. Light and darkness are kind of the two-word summaries of like, these things don't go together. Life does not go with death. It's one or the other. And light represents life. Darkness represents death. And basically what happens is there are two types of darkness that we see throughout Scripture that we see in our lives today. There's darkness that is done by you and darkness that is done to you. Let me talk about both for just a moment. So darkness that is done by you. So what happens is, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks, in Genesis chapter 3, is Adam and Eve are going to rebel. They're going to commit treason against the one true king. They're going to act like they know better. And the, what is the result of that? As After they rebel, God comes pursuing them. And some of you need to hear this because you've run from God, but God's not stopped running after you. We see that in Genesis chapter 3 because God goes after Adam and Eve after they go away from him. And what is the first thing that we see after they commit a sin that they know they're guilty of? They hide. How do you know that there is some form of darkness in your life? You're hiding something. There's something secret. There's something shameful. There's something sinful that you don't want anybody to know about. And so you're hiding it. So maybe this is when you're on that incognito browser. Or you're deleting your history. Or you're paying with cash. Or the business trips are no longer just business. And so what happens is there's things that we're doing that we know we shouldn't be doing, and we're trying to hide it. And here's the biblical principle, is the things that you cover, God will eventually come to uncover. The things that you uncover and bring into the light, God says, I'm going to cover that. I'm going to cover that with my grace. I'm going to cover that with my mercy. I'm going to cover that with my forgiveness. And that's the hope. But then there's things done to you. This is another form of darkness. So what happens is in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, um, they get into the blame game whenever God comes looking for them. Well, she did this, he did that, the serpent tempted us. And so everything about their sin is now shifted onto another person and something that they apparently feel like they were wronged in some way. And if some of you are being honest, that's the narrative internally in your mind most days. You think more about vengeance than you do about repentance. And so what happens is it's, man, I'm getting bullied. I'm getting exploited at work. I was abused. I was abandoned as a child. They lied to me. They cheated on me. And what happens is, by the way, did you know that bitterness is a form of meditation? It's just thinking about things that lead you to death. It's like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. And so what happens is you're meditating on death when you allow yourself to be defined by the things that have been done to you. And, and here's, the, here's the whole Bible is about, is about God. Jesus comes in John chapter 8, and there was a woman who did something she wasn't supposed to. And at once there was someone who did something to her that he wasn't supposed to. In John chapter 8, it was a woman, she was caught in the act of adultery, in the darkness, brought into the public square, thrown before Jesus at the temple, and with, with, with rocks in hand, ready to stone her. They, they, they put Jesus on trial, and they say, teacher, what do we do about her? The law says to stone her, what do you say? He says, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And they walk away one by one. And then Jesus, in a, in a moment that probably felt like an eternity to this woman, looks at this woman, and he says, Woman, where are your accusers? 
she says they're nowhere in sight. He says, and this is the gospel. This is, this is good things coming from God's spoken word. Neither do I condemn you. What does he do? He forgives her. Now go and leave your life of sin. He frees her. He says, you want forgiveness? You've got it. You want freedom? Walk in the light. And in the very next verse, Jesus discloses himself saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Number three, lastly, when God speaks, empty things are filled. When God speaks, empty things are filled. And I've got a visual that I want to show you just so that you can kind of see the way that creation is ordered. I said on days one through three, what does God do? He forms. And so on day one, he forms the light. He gives the light of his glory to creation. And then on day four, what does he do? He fills the light of his creation with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then on day two, what does he do? He forms the sea and the skies. And then on day five, he fills it with the fishes of the sea and the birds of the air. And then on day three, he forms the land and the vegetation. On day six, what happens is he fills it with life, with land animals, with humans. Day seven rest, we'll get to that. But what, the reason why this is so important is because this design pattern is setting up what you're going to see for the rest of the Bible. Because like creation, until Christ speaks, we're empty. Until Christ fills, we're empty. Did you know that the more alcohol you drink, <laughs> the more coffee you drink, the more dehydrated you will be? It's, it's, the doctors you talk about it, it's, it's phenomenal. It's like you're filling yourself with something that ought to fill you up, but it's actually leaving you empty. And so what do we do? Well, we turn to these empty fillers that the world says will fill. What do we do? We want power. I want to be in charge. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. We want to be popular. I want to have all these followers and friends and everybody to like me. And then we want pleasure. We say, I just want to feel good. I want to self-medicate. I want to check out. And, and, and then we turn to possessions. We say, I want to have nice things. And it's like alcohol and coffee. The more that you get, the more empty that you feel. And this is, this is, what, this is what I want to show you is in Jeremiah chapter 2, 13. You don't need to turn there. Just hear me kind of speak this over you. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters. And they have formed for themselves broken vessels that cannot hold water. This is so significant. Because in the beginning, it's remarkable the way that the Bible all fits together. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to see this next week, we see that there was a river of life that was at the top of Eden, the Garden of Eden, that flowed down into the rest of the garden, and in its flowing, it gave life. Adam and Eve would have drank water from this river. They would have known what it was like for them to be satisfied from this river. And what that is, is that setting us up to see that the, the main metaphor in Scripture that we see for uh, empty things being filled is water quenching your thirst. And so Jesus comes in John chapter 4, and he has an encounter with a thirsty woman. She's failed, she's flawed, 
She's fearful. And Jesus says, hey, listen, I see that you're thirsty. You're looking for a drink. If you come to me, I'll give you a fountain of living waters that will never run dry. And you will never thirst again. And he does, and she's filled. But then, in John chapter 19, we see our crucified king raised up on the cross. And he says, it is finished. And what did that mean? It is finished is Jesus' version of saying, it is good again. What you decreated, I have recreated. And right after he says that, what does he say? I thirst. And what was he saying right there? It was more than physical thirst. He was saying, because I emptied myself of my fullness and stepped into your emptiness, and because I thirst, now you can be satisfied. And after he surrenders his soul to the Lord and he collapses into death on the cross, the soldiers go to pierce his side. And in, the, in piercing his side, what happens? Blood comes out with water. And that fountainhead that stood over Eden that gave life to all of creation was now found at the cross where water was pouring out once more what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What I want to tell you, church, I want to tell you is that we want to be a church who, when God speaks, we listen. <laughs> because when God speaks, good things happen. And what's this going to look like? It's going to look like us having an open Bible. It's going to look like us having an open life. So let me pray that we would be that kind of church right now.